First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 19. So Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And the Word of God says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard work for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time of worship that we've had together to sing your praises, to sing about your mercy and your grace. And Lord, we thank you for the story of your grace that we have just heard. And we pray, Father, your Holy Spirit would take your word today, apply it to our hearts. Father, change us today because we've been in your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, you turn to Acts 9, the passage that was just read for us. And so after taking a break for the last six weeks or so, uh, we are back now in the book of Acts, which we are walking through verse by verse this year, this story of the early church, the first church, the story of how they took the good news of Jesus all over the world. And I'll tell you what, we're not really wading back into it slowly either today. As we come to Acts 9, uh, we are looking at really what is the mo- one of the most important stories in all of the Word of God. 
Uh, you can make the case that after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, which of course nothing else compares with that, and then after the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, that this event that we just read about, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, is perhaps the most important event in the Bible. Some have said that Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, is the most important person who has ever lived apart from Jesus. I think you can make a strong case for that because it was this man that we know as Paul who took the gospel message all over the world, planted churches everywhere he went, Through the inspiration of the Spirit, it was this man, Paul, who wrote about half of the books that we have in the New Testament. And think about it. Because of Paul, we have Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Romans and all the rest. And yet what we see in this story is that Paul did not start out as the man that we know him as, as the greatest missionary ever for Christ. He started out as the number one enemy of the church. And he thought Jesus was a false prophet. He thought Jesus' followers were heretics who were spreading lies. And he thought his job was to root them out from wherever they might be hiding. Now, just as an aside here, I'm probably going to be bouncing back and forth a bit today between the names Saul and Paul. Uh, both of these two names belong to this same man. And uh, really, he had both of these names throughout his life. Saul was his Hebrew name. He was named after the first king of Israel. Paul was his Roman name. Again, he had both of those names throughout his life. So he really didn't get a name change when he came to know Christ, as sometimes is stated. But for the reader of the New Testament, it almost seems like he did, because he's known to us as Saul before he meets Christ. And then after he meets Christ, or shortly after in Acts 13, and really from then on in the New Testament, uh, we know him as the Apostle Paul. When we first meet this man, Saul, back in Acts chapter 7, when there is a mob in Jerusalem uh, who is very unhappy with a Christian man named Stephen and the message that Stephen was preaching. And so they stone Stephen to death, the first martyr in the history of the church. And the scripture says that a people who stoned Stephen to death laid down the coats that they were wearing at the feet of a young man, a young Pharisee, this man, Saul. And so he was there watching when Stephen was put to death. He was approving of it, in fact. Here's how the beginning of chapter 8 describes what happened next. It says, now Saul was consenting to his, to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison." I mean, wow, you know, people have a lot of different feelings about the church. I'm aware of that. You know, some people love the church. Some people are, you know, kind of apathetic about the church. They can take it or leave it, but not Saul. Saul hated the church. He hated this group of disciples of this Jesus, the Nazarene, and he hated them so much, he was literally going into people's houses, and he knew that Christians lived there, dragging them off, men and women, didn't matter, hauling them off to jail, and it wasn't like this was just a passing fad for him or, or a season that he quickly got over. When you come to Acts 9, look at how that chapter begins. 
It says, then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Isn't that so descriptive? Breathing threats and murder. Threats towards these disciples, murderous intentions towards them were flowing out of his mouth like the air that he breathed. He was so upset, he wasn't even willing to drive them out of Jerusalem and then let them be. Now, he was traveling to faraway cities to extradite them back to Jerusalem, where he hoped that they would be properly punished. And this city of Damascus that he was going to here was 135 miles from Jerusalem. Right? And, and this is before planes, trains, and automobiles, right? So this is a six-day journey there and a six-day journey back. And this man was willing to take weeks out of his life if, if it was necessary, as long as he could get his hands on some of these followers of the way, it was worth it to him. Now that expression that you see there, followers of the way, in verse 2, uh, probably relates to what Jesus said in John fourteen six when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And his followers were known as followers of the way. And again, Saul wanted to do everything he can to capture them, to have them arrested, to, if possible, have more of them go the way of Stephen. The thing to remember as we read this story is that Saul actually thought, as he was on his way to Damascus that day with letters in his hand and hatred in his heart, he actually thought that what he was doing was part of his ministry to God. He, he truly believed that he was being zealous for God, that he was standing in a line of Old Testament saints who were zealous in their service to the Lord. He honestly thought God would be pleased with him because of what he was doing and rooting out this heresy and, and the lies that he believed these people were spreading. Along the way today, as we walk through Saul's salvation story, I believe there's several lessons we can learn. Uh, about salvation in general, about how salvation works in our own lives still today. Here's the first lesson we need to see. Being saved and being sincere in what you believe are not the same thing. Being saved, being sincere in what you believe are not the same thing. Many people will say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you are sincere about it. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? Right? You hear that a lot. And yet the reality is you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And Saul was very sincere in his religious faith. Not only was he sincere, he was passionate he was maybe the most passionate Jewish man on the planet at that time. So passionate again, he was willing to traipse over a hundred miles away to do what he believed was the work of God. You know, the story of Saul's conversion is so important that it actually shows up three times in the book of Acts. Here we are reading the event as it actually happened, as it first occurred. But then in chapter 22 and chapter 26 of Acts, we read two times where uh, Paul shares the story of his salvation, once in front of a mob and once in front of King Agrippa. And uh, I love when he shares with King Agrippa, he gives a little bit of insight into what was in his heart and what was in his mind as he was walking down that road to Damascus that day. Listen to these words. He said, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Well, that's what he was doing here. Now, folks, that's passion, isn't it? That's sincerity. That's religion. But that's not salvation. Saul was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong about Jesus. And he was not saved. He was on the road to Damascus, but at the beginning of this story, before he met the Lord, he was also on the road to hell. And friends, it's easy to be on that road. Jesus said it's a wide road. It's a broad path that leads to destruction, and many there are who travel by it. Because being sincere and being saved are not the same thing. Friend, it does matter what we believe. It matters who we believe in. Again, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so, friend, make sure today that you don't just have sincerity, that you don't just have religion, that you don't just have passion, but you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's only through him that salvation comes. The story of Saul's conversion really moves pretty quickly. Once you get to verse 3, he was almost to the city of Damascus. From other accounts, we know that it was the middle of the day. It was right about high noon. The sun was shining, but suddenly there was a bright, blinding light from heaven that outshone the sun and quite literally knocked him down to the ground. And not only did he see a bright light, but in other accounts, he records that he saw the glorified, exalted, risen Lord Jesus speaking to him. And so, as many have said, the light of the glory of the sun, the S-O-N, was brighter than the light of the S-U-N. It's not only, though, what Saul saw, but it's what he heard that changed his life. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, calling him by name, why are you persecuting me? Now, don't don't miss that. There's such a oneness such an identity between the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples that Jesus said when Saul was persecuting those disciples, Saul was actually persecuting the Lord directly. At this point, Saul didn't know who it was. He knew it was a heavenly voice. He assumed it was a divine agent of some kind. And so he asked the question, who are you, Lord? And the name that he heard back was probably the last name that he wanted to hear. The name that he most feared to hear in verse 5, Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I think there's a couple of lessons about our salvation that we can learn in these uh, verses. Here's lesson number two. Salvation comes because God in his sovereign grace hunts us down. And that's certainly the case here in the story of Saul's conversion, isn't it? Saul was not somebody who was on the verge of accepting Christ, right? Saul was not uh, somebody who we might call a seeker who just needed to hear one more time about Jesus and then he would believe, right? Uh, Suffice it to say, Saul was not on the church's Tuesday night visitation list, Right? They weren't thinking, you know, let's just swing by his house one more time and share about Jesus one more time and, and maybe he'll get saved. No, he wasn't on that list. Because at this point, he was about as far away from faith as a man could possibly be. So far that he was hunting down those who did believe in Jesus. And so how is it that he gets saved even though he is not pursuing at all 
the Lord. He's saved because God in his matchless, limitless grace comes pursuing him. He gets saved because God's love for sinners, even sinners like Saul, is limitless. He was saved because the hunter became the hunted. The hound of heaven came after him. What we need to understand from the scriptures is that actually none of us, even if perhaps you're not hunting down uh, Christians or you weren't doing that before you were saved, the Bible says that none of us are really pursuing the Lord before we meet Jesus. And this is what Paul would later write in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 3, quoted from the Psalms, and he said this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. So there's the truth of God's word. Nobody is really seeking after God on their own. We are all have turned aside. We've all turned to do our own thing, to live how we want to. Now you might see somebody like the Ethiopian eunuch perhaps in Acts chapter 8 that we studied who is in his chariot and reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And you might think, well, he's seeking after the Lord. Uh, Somebody like Cornelius that we'll study when we come to Acts chapter 10, who was a God-fearer. He was praying. You might think he is seeking the Lord. And yet what we understand based on Romans 3 is that nobody is searching for God unless God is first searching for them. If somebody is looking for God, it's because the hound of heaven is running after their very souls. This is how Jesus put it in John chapter 6. No one can come to the Father or to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So friend, today, if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then thank the Father today for drawing you to the Son. Thank God that that sometime in your life, just like he did in Saul's life, he stopped you uh, when you were on your road to Damascus and he stopped you in your tracks and the sovereign grace of God saved your soul and turned you around. And what that means is that there's nothing for us to boast about. We make our boast in the Lord who loved us and who saved us because of his limitless grace. Here's another lesson I see in this part of Saul's salvation story. Number three, being saved involves a life-changing encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. When when Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he heard back those words that we see in verse five, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I mean, what a moment that must have been for Saul, (laughs) right? Everything in his life, in that moment, he understood he was basically 100% wrong. He thought that he was the theologically correct one until that moment. He thought that he was holy, that he was righteous, that he was on the right side, that he was on God's side, that those who followed Jesus and said that he had been raised from the dead were fools. But in that moment, he saw the risen Lord. He knew that Jesus was alive. It meant that Saul was wrong, that Jesus was king. And you know, while in time that truth would be a glorious truth to Saul, in that moment, think about it, it must have been a terrifying and gut-wrenching realization because it meant that he had been persecuting the very one that he should have been worshiping. 
But as hard as it was for him to hear that truth, the encounter he had with Jesus would change his life forever. I I know some people try to almost explain away what happened to Saul here by saying that it was some kind of a hallucination or maybe a medical thing like an epileptic seizure or something like that. But none, none of those alternative explanations make any sense of the 180 degree shift that happened in Saul's life. None of those explain the fact that here was a man who up until this moment was bent on utterly destroying the early church and yet he was totally transformed, became the greatest missionary the church has ever seen and one who ultimately would go to his death because of his faith in Christ. What, what can explain that? The only thing that can explain that is what Saul said happened, that he met the risen Lord and it changed his life. I, I know sometimes people uh, talk about life-changing things in kind of a casual way. I don't know if you ever heard. Some people even do that about food. I've had people say that to me like, they'll, they'll say, man, have you had this burger at this one particular place? <laughs> they'll say, it'll change your life. You put this burger in your mouth, it it will be life-changing to you. I'm pretty sure Brother Larry said that about the burger plate. It will change your life. But we know a burger won't actually change your life, but, but friends, meeting Jesus will change your life. If you're here today and meeting Jesus has changed your life, can you make a little noise? Can somebody be excited about that? If if meeting the Lord has changed your life. It's not just that way for Saul that we know as Paul. It's that way for every single one of us. You're not saved if you haven't met Jesus. And if you've met Jesus, then you're saved. Because meeting Jesus, intersecting the person of Jesus is what saves us. We hear what he did for us at the cross. And then we do what Saul did next. Here's lesson four about our salvation. To be saved, you must surrender your life to the Lord Jesus. I think you begin to see that surrender as early as verse six. He's still, I'm sure, in a state of shock over what he had just heard, that Jesus was alive, that Jesus was the Lord. But he already immediately begins to surrender his will to the Lord. Look at verse 6, what he says. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Saul understood that if Jesus is the risen Lord, then he is Lord of all. And if he's Lord of all, then he's Lord of his life. But he was no longer in the driver's seat of his life, and he needed to move over. And so, friend, have you ever done that? Have you ever fully surrendered your life to the Lord like he did here? We have to make a decision about that. You know, I know in college, you know, one of the majors you can have in college is uh, undecided. Isn't that a great major? I'm undecided. Undecided, that's what I am. And, and of course, the college would like for you to remain undecided for about 12 years. As long as you keep paying tuition, they'll, they'll be glad for you to, to do that. You know, you can be undecided when it comes to a college major, but you can't be undecided when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even to not make a decision is, is to make a decision comes a point we have to surrender our will to his. Now, here's the thing. You know, when you, when you do that and you say, what do you want me to do? The Lord very rarely will tell a person everything he wants them to do for the rest of their life. Right? Notice what he said to, to, to Saul here. He said, what do you want me to do? He said, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, isn't that frustrating when the Lord does that to you? Right? You're saying, what do you want me to do? And, and he says, well, I'm just going to tell you this much and, and then you need to wait. And I'll tell you the rest. 
especially as young people, I think. You know, we want the Lord to fill in all the details, right? We want, you know, tell me who I'm going to marry and tell me what college I need to go to and tell me where, you know, a job I'm going to have and tell me where I'm going to live. And we want the Lord to lay out the whole roadmap for us, but he doesn't do that for us very often. And, And that's his grace, by the way. Do you think Paul was prepared in this moment to have God tell him everything that he was going to suffer as he followed him? He had just met the Lord two seconds before this. Was he ready to hear about all the beatings, about all the shipwrecks, about the beheading that was coming his way? No, he wasn't ready. But he was ready to hear, just go to this city and wait for me and I'll tell you what to do next. You know, sometimes I think the will of God is like, a, like the headlights on the front of our car when we're driving down the road at night. Those headlights don't, don't shine hundreds of miles all the way to your final destination, do they? They shine about 10 feet. But then when you get there, they shine the next 10 feet. And then when you get there, they shine the next 10 feet. And you know, you can keep driving like that all the way to your, your destination. All the time depending that the Lord is going to show you the next step. I wonder what the next step is for you. What's the next thing the Lord has asked you to do. Maybe it's to surrender to him for the very first time today to accept him as your savior. Maybe it's to be baptized as, as Saul's about to do in a moment. Maybe it's to join a small group Bible study to begin to be uh, diligent about just being discipled and growing in your walk with Christ. I don't know what it is that he's calling you to do, but let's be obedient. Let's surrender to the Lord one step at a time. Verse eight says that when the Lord and the blinding light uh, had uh, had, had left, that, that Saul got up from the ground and he couldn't see anything. He was temporarily blinded by the experience that he had for a period of three days. And so his traveling companions had to lift him up and literally lead him by the hand down the road the rest of the way to Damascus. And we don't know all the reasons why the Lord blinded Saul for these three days. I can think of a couple of things that, that could have been. I, I think for one, the Lord probably didn't want him to see anything else for three days because he wanted him to think about what he had just seen. And this was a time of reflection on his life that the Lord was giving to Saul. I think another thing he was likely doing was humbling Saul. You know, he came in riding on a pretty high horse, didn't he? Until the Lord knocked him down to the ground. Now he had to be led by the hand, literally like a little child. Jesus was showing him how helpless he was, how much he needed a savior. Friend, I wonder, maybe, I don't know, maybe the Lord is doing something similar in your life right now, breaking you and humbling you, showing you your need for for Jesus. For the next three days, Saul sat in a house in Damascus. He didn't eat, he didn't drink, couldn't see. He just sat and thought and prayed And then in verse 10, the the story leaves Saul for a moment and goes over to another house in Damascus where there's a Christian man living there named Ananias. Jesus appears to him in a vision and essentially tells him to go to the house where Saul was and deliver a message. It reminds me of what happens in Acts chapter 10 that we'll see in a few weeks where there's a double vision where the Lord appears to Peter and the Lord appears to Cornelius and he wants to bring these two men together. That's that's what he's doing here. He wants to bring Ananias and Saul together. And of course, the Lord still does that today. He puts people on our hearts. He wants to bring us together with them, especially brand new believers as Saul was. He wants to bring us together to them, to come alongside them, to help them, to encourage them. The problem here, though, was that Ananias had heard about this man Saul already. 
Saul was notorious. He heard about the harm, it says in verse 13, literally the evil that Saul had done to the saints who were in Jerusalem. And he knew that now he's here in Damascus to do, to do the very same thing to us. And so Ananias says, you know, Lord, I'm not so sure this is like a super fantastic idea, right? For me to just go walking into this man Saul's house, he's literally like the number one terrorist of, of the church. I'm one of the people he's looking for. You want me just to walk in there? But he didn't know of course, what the Lord knew. He didn't know what happened on the road. And the Lord reassures Ananias and says, I've chosen Saul for a special purpose. Then he told him in verse 16 that this one who had caused so much suffering to other Christians would over the course of his life have to suffer a lot of things himself. It's a part of what it meant for him to follow Christ. And, and to Ananias' credit, after the Lord spoke, he Immediately obeyed, he gets up, he walks down to straight street, he goes into the door where Saul was quietly sitting. And this encounter between Ananias and, and Saul, it shows us another lesson about our salvation so beautifully, so clearly. Church, number five, when you are saved, all things become new in your life. And you see that from the very beginning in the story of Saul. First off, you see right away from Saul's story, as a new believer in Christ, you have a new family, a new family. I want you to put yourself in Saul's shoes. You're sitting there in that room in a chair probably, and you're, 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 just, you're praying and you're thinking, and you hear a knock at the door. You can't see anything. You hear footsteps coming behind you. You don't know who it is. You don't know whether it's friend or foe. You don't know what the intention is. And Ananias comes and he lays his hands on Saul's head and he speaks this word to him. And the first two words that Ananias says when he lays his hands on Saul, I believe are the two most beautiful words in this passage. He says, brother Saul. Brother Saul. This was a man who up until three days before had been terrorizing the church. And yet he is greeted by another Christian with a family greeting because Ananias knew that Saul, because of the grace of God, was now just as much a part of the family of God as he was. And so he was willing to immediately set to the side everything that Ananias had done or that uh, Saul had done in his past. He was willing to forgive him. He was willing to welcome him with open arms and to refer to him as brother Saul. This should remind us that we are all family in the church of God. Doesn't matter who we are. Doesn't matter what our background is. Doesn't matter what we've done before we came to know Christ. We are all family. If you know Jesus and I know Jesus, then you are my brother. You are my sister in Christ. That means that if somebody is to come into this room and maybe they look different from you, Maybe it looks like from appearances that they've had a rough life. Maybe the scars of their past lifestyle is evident all over their body, all over their face. But they come to know Christ as their Savior. And in that moment, they are forgiven just as you and I are forgiven. Church, there is no difference between them and you and me. And as believers, we understand that. We want to welcome everyone into the family of God. This is a church that is not just a place for khaki-wearing professionals, okay? And I say that in love. I don't know about the professional part, but I like to wear some khakis from time to time. But, but this is just in a church that's just for that. This is a place for anybody from any lifestyle who can find grace. 
when they turn from their sin and they turn to Jesus. And when that happens, immediately, just like Ananias did with Saul, we receive them as our brother, as our sister in the Lord. You get a new family. When you turn to Christ, you also get a new purpose. The Lord told Ananias what his purpose was in Saul's life. Look look back at verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, for he, Saul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, the children of Israel. That's really like an outline of the rest of the book of Acts because that's what we see the Apostle Paul doing. Preaching before Gentiles, before Jewish folks, before kings. And we know that Saul's calling was unique in many ways. We talked about that earlier. He was called of the Lord literally to pen about half the pages of the New Testament. We know we don't have that same calling. And yet in another sense, our calling is very similar to Saul's. Because we have been called, if you know Christ, to bear the name of Jesus everywhere that you go. To share his name with everyone you meet, everywhere that he sends you, to to live in such a way and to speak in such a way that we hold up the glory of the name of Christ, that we live not for ourselves, but for the one who has saved us. That is your new purpose, if you know Christ. And then, of course, also when you're saved, you become a new person, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. In verse 17, Ananias tells his new brother Saul why the Lord sent him to meet him. The Lord wanted to restore Saul's sight. He also wanted him to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which of course every child of God receives that filling of the Spirit. We put our faith in Christ and we surrender to him. And it's the Holy Spirit within us that makes us new people. It gives us a new identity. And you see that new identity in verse 18. It says, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales And he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. Now notice, just like we talked about last week, after he was saved, after he came to know Christ, his first step of obedience was to be baptized. It's a picture of what God had done inside his heart. I I love the fact that we're going to be able to celebrate in just a few hours, many in our church, who are going to do the same thing that Saul did right here and follow the Lord in baptism this afternoon. But notice also it speaks about the scales falling from his eyes. That was a picture, of course, of his physical sight being restored, but it was definitely a symbol of more than that. That was a symbol of the spiritual scales falling from his eyes as well, that for the first time, Saul was able to see. That happens to every person, every person since, who has met the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the truth, church. Paul's salvation story is our salvation story, because just like That song, Amazing Grace, that we sing. We once were blind, but now we what? Now we see. And it's because of the grace of God who met us and changed us just like it did Saul. There's one final lesson about salvation that I want us to see. And really, this is the main idea. This is the big truth of this whole story. If the salvation of Saul teaches us anything, it teaches us this right here. There is nobody that our limitless God cannot save. There's nobody that our limitless God cannot save. Even the church's number one enemy can be reached. The the aggressor can become the ambassador. The, the, The punisher can become the preacher. The merciless one can become the church's greatest missionary. And I love the fact that the Apostle Paul never forgot where he came from. 
If you read his letters, he always remembered that he was actively working against Christ and against the church until God's grace got a hold of him. This, this is what he said to his son in the faith, Timothy. Years later, he wrote these words. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, Paul said, God saved me, the chief of all sinners, as a pattern of what he was going to continue to do in other people's lives. It's what God has been doing for the last 2,000 years and counting. He meets people anywhere, no matter where they are, no matter how far down they are, no matter how broken their lives are, no matter how much of a mess it feels like their lives are, he meets them and he saves them and he brings them into the family. A friend of mine, Pastor Tony Morita, tells the story of a time he visited Ukraine and he met many pastors there who were working in former Soviet bloc nations, and many of them have been saved out of some pretty rough uh, backgrounds. He met one pastor in particular whose name was Emmanuel. Emmanuel uh, had been in prison for many years. Marita writes that uh, the only time this man touched a Bible before he met Jesus was when he would tear pages out of it and use it for rolling paper for his tobacco habit. Emmanuel was a huge man. He had tattoos on every finger on both of his hands. He had such a powerful grip that Tony said when he gripped his hand, it hurt. And yet because of the grace of God in this man Emmanuel's life, he said he's one of the kindest, gentlest pastors you could ever meet. And now Marita says this, quote, instead of smoking the Bible, he is proclaiming it to others. Friend, there is nobody, absolutely nobody, that our limitless God and his limitless grace cannot reach. I pray that uh, the Lord has had a word for every one of us today listening to this powerful story of Saul's salvation. But there's two groups of people in particular that are on my heart. And I want to invite you, if you're in one of these two groups, to respond today to what God has said to you. First of all, I'm thinking about those today uh, who, maybe you know a Saul. Maybe you know a Saul. Maybe there's somebody in your life and uh, you know, in your, in your honest moments, you feel like they cannot be reached. And you feel like, you know, maybe you've tried or, or just their reaction or just the lifestyle that they're living. You just feel like they, they are so far away from Jesus. Like, I, just, I just don't know. I, I, don't, I don't see it. Well, we need to realize the whole world would have said that about Saul. He was probably the last person on earth that anybody would have thought would have been saved. And yet God saved him in a moment. And maybe there's somebody, a Saul that's on your mind right now that you're thinking about. that you've almost given up hope on. We're not supposed to give up hope on anybody. We need to keep bringing them to the Lord, lifting them up, knowing that God can save and so as we sing in just a moment, maybe you just need to kneel right where you are. Maybe you want to come up to the altar and just have several in our first service do that, just to just kind of leave their name here before the Lord and say, God, I still believe you're a God who saves. Use me if possible to be an instrument, a vessel to show your grace to them. So maybe you know us all. Here's the second group I want to speak to. Maybe today you are 
a Saul. I don't know, maybe you're even more like Saul. Maybe you've just almost been opposing the church, opposing Christians up until this time. And maybe because of things you've experienced or hurt you've had in the past, maybe even in church. You've seen some hypocrisy that just kind of turned you off. And so you, you've kind of been a Saul. Like you're, you're kind of outspoken even against Christians and Christianity. And yet you've been here today. I don't know, maybe somebody invited you today. Maybe somebody invited you to watch online today. You're on our iCampus right now watching but you just relate so much to this story of Saul because today you, you know in your spirit, God is stopping you in your tracks on the road to Damascus and he wants to turn you around. And today you need to come. And, and so as we stand and sing in a moment, I'll invite you to come and speak with me or one of the other pastors here. Reach out online to one of our pastors hosting there. I'd love to just be able to introduce you today to, to the Savior who can, can change us, change every one of us. I wanna ask you to stand, church. So we pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that your grace reaches us no matter where we are, no matter our background, no matter what we've done. You can change Saul if you can change me. Lord, you can change anyone in this room. So God, I pray today that your grace would be moving and working. I pray for those who know us all, that we'd be lifting our souls up to you, the God who saves. If we are us all today, we'd come running to you to find grace, to find forgiveness that meets us right where we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.